Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Henry Mance, the FT's Chief Features Writer, standing in for Gideon Rackman while he's on holiday. This week we're looking at Spain, which is facing a pivotal general election on Sunday. My guest is Pablo Simón, a political scientist at Charles III University of Madrid and one of Spain's leading political analysts. If the polls are correct, the centre-left socialist party, the PSOE, led by Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, is about to be ousted by the centre-right popular party, potentially in coalition with hard-right upstarts Vox. So, what will Spain's next government look like? Good morning. I will be brief and I will also try to be very clear. It was Pedro Sánchez himself who called the snap election in May after a bruising set of regional election results. I have informed the head of state of my intention to hold a cabinet meeting this afternoon to dissolve parliament and to call a general election. I have made this decision based on the election results yesterday. But the campaign has not gone as he might have hoped. In his only TV debate against the popular party leader Alberto Núñez Fejó, the usually smooth prime minister surprisingly found himself on the defensive. Here's Fejó in that debate criticising Sánchez for passing key legislation with the votes of Esquerra Republicana de Catalunya, a Catalan nationalist party, and Basque Nationalist Party Bildu, which has never apologised for years of ETA terrorism. Now, Sánchez was once nicknamed El Guapo, the handsome one. He was celebrated for his political tactics when he came to power in 2018 by engineering a confidence vote in the then Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy. So I began by asking Pablo Simón how things had unravelled for the Prime Minister. I think we have to divide this period in government in two different stages. The first period was between 2018 and beginning of, let's say, the end of the pandemic and the creation of this minority coalition government with Podemos that, of course, was something very new for Spain as well, because remember that since the Second Republic, we have never had a coalition government at the national level. Podemos is the force to the left of his socialist party. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's say in terms of the political family, it's not very common to have a traditional social democrat party entering a coalition government with what we can call the radical left or the post-communist left, that was the case. Well, this party entered as a junior partner in the coalition with Sanchez, and it started the government in 2019 after two elections. And then we have this first period of his stay in office bearing with the pandemic. And according to the polls, we have not seen that the government was eroded by this situation until the second stage, that is the beginning of the Ukrainian war and the replacement of the leadership of the Popular Party. The former leader of the Popular Party during the period of Pedro Sánchez was Pablo Casado. Pablo Casado was, a, let's say, a young leader of the right, very inspired or very similar to Sebastian Kurz in Austria. But he was replaced by Núñez Feijó. At the same time, 
of this Ukrainian war that started and started also to erode the purchase power of the Spaniards. And during all this second half of his stay in office, we started to see the erosion of the government. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we see in different countries in Europe, including in the UK, that governments became very popular in the early days of the pandemic. And then for various reasons, it's now a very difficult time for incumbents. You mentioned inflation. There's also this history that Sanchez never won a big mandate, never won a majority that would allow him to do whatever he wanted. I mean, Spain's political parties have been in real flux. So we've seen the emergence of a left-wing populist grouping, that's Podemos, a right-wing grouping, that's Vox. And we also saw a centrist liberal grouping, Ciudadanos, Citizens, which has basically now disappeared. And so Sanchez to govern, he allied with Podemos on the left, but he was also relying on the separatist parties in the Basque Country and in Catalonia. Has it worked out for him? How has it worked out for him? Exactly. Sanchez had not any other possible coalition. He did not fulfill a pledge he made during the electoral campaign. He said that he will never made a coalition or accept any kind of agreement with the pro-independence parties and that he cannot sleep well if Podemos enters in government. Finally, they enter because there were no other options. And then what we have here is a very noisy coalition, not only with Podemos, but also with all the groups that are within Podemos. So you have a lot of different personalities coming from different groups from the left that's entering government and create a lot of noise concerning the way they proceed to solve the differences of the Council of Ministers. They are always following the same strategy. They are always presenting the differences to the public uh, opinion that eroded the support of the government. But we have also seen that it was an incomplete coalition because they required the support in the Congress of Esquerra Republicana and Bildu. And it activates the anger of the right-wing voters that do not accept that uh, the government of Spain, after what happened with the proclamation of the independence of Catalonia, can be supported by those parties because at the end of the day they want to split up Spain. So that created instability for the government also in the Congress, despite it is true that this government have approved all the budgets. So at the end of the day they were able to pass their main legislations. But Again, it created a lot of noise and probably it have eroded the popularity of the government as well. And in terms of competence, this key law, the CSC, yes is yes, which is intended to really clamp down on sexual offences. Just explain how that went through and how Podemos was seen as incompetent for the way it was managed. Well, this claim of feminism was very connected with a lot of protests that were associated with a very terrible case that took place, a rape in Pamplona during San Fermines. That's the big festival in Pamplona, the running of the bulls, etc. Exactly. And it created a lot of support for a change in the law in order to protect better women against cases of sexual abuse and rapists. Okay. So the first problem was that there were a clear struggle between the socialist branch of the government and Podemos on the control of this portfolio. For the traditional feminists on the socialists, they never accepted that this portfolio went to Podemos. And there were a first point of opposition between them because the two parties were competing to show the public opinion that there were the more feminists. But after that, they were looking on the reform of the Código Penal, that is the sanctions to the law in order to protect better with the women. But during the process, when this law was approved, what happened is that it created a potential interpretation that reduced 
the number of years in prison of people accused by sexual abuse. And it was simply because they changed the range of the punishment for those rapists. And at the end of the day, you know that in all judiciary systems, the judges have to apply those sentences that are more favorable to the people that are accused or prosecuted. But the problem is that it was an unintended consequence of these reforms. So it created a huge emergency and attacked the government in a crucial issue that moved the agenda of talking about feminism in a more proactive way, to talk about feminism more oriented to security, and of course, something more suited for the right. And then the branch of Podemos, Irene Montero, rejected to say that there were any problem with the law. They said that all the problem was with the judges that were extremely conservative. They even called fascists the judges. So finally, the socialists proposed a reform of this law that was voted against by Podemos in the Congress. And the PSOE approved this modification in the law against the will of the ministers of Podemos, but also with the support of the Popular Party. And I consider that this is a crucial crisis that can explain why the government is so eroded by the center, because it was seen as a mismanagement of a crucial point, which is at the end of the day, you need to do laws appropriately to have the effects that they are supposed to have. Let's switch focus now to the other side of the political debate. Now, the polls are very close, but one thing they do show is that the popular party, the centre-right party, is very likely to be the largest party as a result. Can you tell us a bit about its leader since last year, Alberto Núñez Fejó? I mean, he's only been leader for a year, but he looks in a very strong position. Is he the kind of classic centre-right leader that people across Europe would recognise, you know, slightly lower on taxes, slightly more business-friendly? Yeah, well, Núñez Feijó is the former regional president of a uh, region in the corner of Spain, which is Galicia, traditional stronghold of the right since the 80s. And in general, to understand Núñez Feijó, we have to say that he arrived to power as a part of what we call in Spain the barones territoriales, so the regional leaders of the Popular Party. And it's the first time in which we have a kind of decentralized presidium within the party. Altogether, the president of Madrid, the president of Andalusia, and the president of Galicia, altogether, they killed their leader and they replaced him in no more than two months, three months, so it was extremely quickly, simply because the problem of mismanagement and accusation that Pablo Casado made against the regional president of, of the Comunidad de Madrid. He was appointed as leader as the one with a more, let's say, symbolic capital of all the regional leaders. He was the senior leader of the regional leaders. So Núñez Feijó, we can say he's a traditional conservative leader in the terms of economic, uh, more pro-business agenda. You will plan, as the Popular Party always do, a kind of uh, reduction in taxation. and So in general, a more liberal agenda. But on terms of social rights, I will say that he's to some extent moderate. He does not tend to enter on this, what we can call cultural wars. He doesn't like to uh, enter to discuss those things as other branches of the Popular Party, like in Madrid, does. So he's more oriented as a moderate leader, but of course everything will depend on the result of the election because it's not the same having this leader in a single minority government that in a coalition with Vox and the implications that it can have for Spain. But in any case, we can say that Núñez Feijó is uh, someone who is predictable. 
Let's move on to Vox now. For a long time, Spain was a kind of exceptional country in European politics because it didn't seem to have a radical right and it seemed to be more tolerant towards immigrants. And there were lots of theories put forward about that. But now you have Vox, which was sort of split off from the popular party, the centre-right party in 2013. And it's polling sort of joint third at the moment. And it's been, a, I think it's fair to say, quite a big centre of the campaign and the debate about whether Vox will be part of the government or essential to the government's majority after the vote. How would you explain, Pablo, the success of Vox over the past decade? Is it mainly about migration? Well, uh, no, not exactly. Uh, Vox is a bit different if you compare the origins of this party with other radical right-wing parties in, in Europe. In general, we know that those family of parties tend to be populist, tend to be xenophobic, tend to be racist, and tend to be authoritarian. That can be the main key issues that have all the parties in common. But in the case of Spain, the emergency of Vox cannot be understood without taking into consideration the Catalan crisis of 2017 the proclamation of independence and how it activated uh, Spanish nationalism that was very strong and emerged in Andalusia. It emerged in Andalusia in 2018 regional election and they, it spread to the whole country. So a kind of a backlash, you know, the Catalan independence forces organized this referendum. It was declared illegal. They went ahead with it. They won because the people who opposed independence in Catalonia didn't take part. But then, you know, completely imploded. They had no plan. And that led to this backlash in Andalusia, where people said, no, we want to stand up for Spain and for the unity of Spain. Exactly. According also to the research we have already done about the reason people vote for Vox on the initial stages. It is true that after that, Vox have moved to introduce also other topics that are more related with what we can say, the radical right from Eastern Europe. So more connected with the idea of opposition to sexual minority rights, to feminism and climate change. They are opposing even Agenda 2030, this United Nations general purpose to improve the quality of life in the world. Well, they say that it's a kind of traditional, let's say, powers that are on the shadows trying to control us. They introduced all those other topics, but it was later. Initially, they emerged as an opposition to what we call the internal enemies of Spain. Those people that don't speak Spanish or speak Catalan, speak Basque, or they feel part of the Basque nation or the Catalan nation. So to some extent, it was a backlash of the Spanish nationalism. And then they present other topics. This explains also why they had a very good result on the repetition of the elections in 2019, in November 2019, because remember that in 2019, on November, was the moment in which there were a lot of protests related with the sentence of the Supreme Court against the pro-independence leaders. And there were a lot of struggles on the streets. They, of course, are also against migration, but not against all migration, because, for instance, they do not oppose those migration coming from Latin America because they share the language and they share the religion. They are against the immigration that come from Eastern Europe or, for instance, the north of Africa, more connected with this idea of Islamophobia that we are seeing in other parts of Europe. Yeah. If they're against immigrants who don't speak Spanish, they probably don't like British expats. But uh, no. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, something that caught my eye, the leader of Vox, Santiago Abascal, I mean, in 2020, you know, at the height of the, the COVID crisis, he was attacking the Sanchez government. And he said, this is the worst government for 80 years, which obviously implies that the Sanchez government in his eyes 
was worse than the Franco regime. I mean, this is sort of astonishing for a uh, foreigner to hear. How did that go down in Spain? I mean, is that really what he thinks? Well, I, I think so, simply because they are trying to do also a revision of history in what concerns their role played by the Franco regime. And they always insist on the idea of the illegitimate government of the Second Republic and how it was the left who started the civil war and how Franco finally bring peace to Spain after the civil war and so on and so forth. So to some extent, they try to reinterpret the history. And it's true that there are people that vote box that probably are not aware of the implication of the kind of discourse they are making, but they are also looking for those traditional sectors that were nearer to the Franco regime that were voters of the Popular Party and now can move to box. So they are also trying to compete on this platform with them. Yeah. And for the centre-left, for Sanchez, it has been a big part of his campaign rhetoric to say, look, if you vote for the centre-right, you're going to end up with Vox and to try and paint this as really the march of the extreme right. But I wonder, I mean, as an outsider looking at this debate, on the one hand, you have the right saying that the left are apologists for what happened with ETA violence in the Basque country and that they haven't apologised for that and that they've used those votes in Parliament to go through. And on the right, you have this discourse around Franco on behalf of Vox, which is kind of unsettling. I mean, to what extent does Spain have a history which it hasn't come to terms with, both in terms of ETA in the Basque country and in terms of the civil war and the legacy of that? Well, you know, if the United States is still talking about their civil war and it took place 150 years ago, it makes sense that even in our case, in which we made a transition to democracy that was trying to prevent having a new civil war and learning from this experience, it is still having some kind of impact, at least at the discourse level. I mean, it's true that it continues having an effect and being a mobilizer for the left and the right. We see all the governments trying to discuss democratic memory and how to change our views on the Franco regime and the role played by the Second Republic and the Civil War. Being on the debate is unavoidable and it will be with us always. It's not something new. In the case of the past country and what implies the terrorism, we have seen a kind of general moderation of the situation in the past country. For instance, Bildu, which is the political branch or the political party that were more committed with those related with terrorism, has been more plural than ever because now they have incorporated people coming from different traditions, not only people linked with this previous situation, but also they have changed their agenda to talk more about social rights and stop talking about terrorism and the territorial question and so on and so forth. So the situation in the past country have improved a lot. The memory of the terrorism and what happened, even so, it is still affecting the mobilization of the right. Because in general, everything that is related with the territorial conflict, with the terrorism and so on, tends to divide the left because there are parts of the left that considers that Bildu have not made the moral pathway they require to condemn all the situation of the terrorism and we cannot make any kind of agreement with them. And for the right, it's something that mobilized them a lot because they consider that the pro-independence party want to destroy Spain and in specific, they're still having the same memory and the same will of the former terrorists of ETA. So it's something that will be with us Always because we have had 100 people killed by this terrorism organization and they stopped their activity no more than a decade ago, even less. So it makes sense that it continues playing a role in the debate. But it's true, again, that the left and the right have different approaches to the topic. 
And it's something that also affects in electoral terms. One way in which the parties could keep the extreme right Vox out of government in Spain is to come together. The two big parties, the PP on the centre-right and the PSOE on the centre-left, they could form a grand coalition as happened in Germany. But nobody thinks that's going to happen. And I wondered if you could explain, Pablo, why that is. Well, it's because of political culture and also how the main political parties interpret the situation in Spain. First, we have to remember that grand coalition, like in Germany, is more the exception. It's not very common to have the two main parties ruling together in a kind of coalition or even with parliamentary support. It's true that we have seen an exception here in Spain in 2016. In 2016, the Popular Party won the government and investiture vote thanks to the abstention of the socialists. But remember that this abstention entailed that the former leader, Pedro Sánchez, presented his resignation. And finally, he won the internal primaries of the party and he came back. But it's true that it was very traumatic for the socialists to abstain and to allow them to rule the country. To some extent, we can have two big families of democracies in Europe. We have consensual democracy where you have a big coalitions, where you have coalitions of different parties, and the power sharing is the priority. So it happened in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, uh, in Germany to some extent. But other democracies like happen in UK or in Greece or in Portugal or in Spain tend to be majoritarian democracy. So what we tend to prioritize is accountability, to have a clear government and a clear opposition. And this is something that prevents the possibility of having a grand coalition. As you said previously, there are a message of the Socialist Party saying that if you vote for the Popular Party, you can end with a coalition with Vox. But it can happen, as happened in Andalusia, that some voters of the Socialist Party decides to vote for the Popular Party simply to prevent this coalition and to give them a strong mandate to avoid box in government. And it happened in Andalusia. So when there were a lot of leftist voters that changed their mind and saying, OK, the best way to prevent the coalition is simply to vote for the Popular Party. And this is exactly the strategy Núñez Feijó is following now. I mean, he's trying to insist, give me a clear mandate, give me a lot of seats in order to have a minority government and to avoid having to bargain and to have a coalition with Santiago Abascal and Vox, which is exactly what you want to prevent. Okay, for Sanchez himself, he was seen as a gambler. He called this election, he brought it forward when it wasn't going well for him politically. Has his gamble failed? Well, he's trying to defend his party, not the government. It's pretty much clear that the Popular Party will become the first party and probably the right will have an absolute majority. So if what you want to have a socialist party that have more than 100 seats, you need to call for an election now, simply because you know that during this period, you will have a lot of agreements of the Popular Party and Vox at the regional level, because it's after the regional and the local elections that took place one month ago. But at the same time, you don't give your adversaries time to organize themselves. And so you can go for an election and then trying to save the situation for your party. So I will say that this gamble of the snap election is a defensive movement to just simply continue in his party because otherwise even he can end with an internal conspiracy. Because remember that all the regional leaders of the Socialist Party, almost all of them, have lost their job one month ago. So they are very angry with him. So I think that is a gamble to defend himself and his party, not to gain or to continue the government. Yeah. You mentioned Vox's position on climate change. You know, we've seen headlines this week of temperatures above 40 degrees, Drought has taken a big impact on Spain. We know the olive oil harvest is less than half it was the previous year. 
And it's funny to think that the politics of the country is actually turning against climate action. So is it likely that if a centre-right government comes out of this, perhaps with the support of Vox, that Spain will be doing less on climate change, not more? Yeah, probably. See that during this electoral campaign, we are not talking at all about climate change. And it surprised me a lot because I think that the government have a strong position here to defend his policies on the topic. But it's true that in general, the Popular Party is not very committed with this issue. They don't care too much on that, despite the evident effects of the climate change in Spain. But what is crucial is that the potential enter of Vox in the government with a very strong basis on the rural areas, which are more conservative, and that want to defend the traditional way of life probably will prevent doing more strategic investments on climate change, on renewables, and all the kind of policies that we have been leading during the past four years and that are also very committed with the European Next Generation funds that we are receiving. So I think that probably we will have an opportunity cost on that. And it's true that having four years of a government that is not committed with this issue can even make a worse situation concerning climate change in Spain. And and final question, Spain holds the EU presidency at the moment until December. If you were in Brussels, would you be nervous about the possibility of Feijóo, possibly with the support of Vox, taking power? Or are they likely to be supportive? I think that it's very difficult that we have a box with portfolios that can compromise the situation of Spain in what concerns being a liberal democracy and continue supporting the EU integration process. But I don't think so. I mean, on defense, home, interior, foreign affairs, all those portfolios will be under the control of the Popular Party for sure. So to some extent, I'm not worried on that. It's true that there are two things that can be more problematic. On the one hand, that Núñez Feijó does not care very much on European issues and foreign affairs. He does not speak English, so probably he simply don't care. So we will have here a problem of, again, opportunity cost. I mean, Spain are not going to be leading policies within European Union, but will be more reactive, which is something that is not very good in a context in which we have Italy out of the table and we have Germany and France with problems and we do not have the UK and we have Poland and Hungary having problems with human rights and the judiciary system. So it's problematic because Spain was in a very crucial position to make more efforts in favor of the integration. So I don't think it's going to happen with Julia Feijó. Moreover, the more probable uh, investiture vote will be taking place on the mid of September. And then we need to appoint ministers and then we need to start to see how the government works. And probably it means that we only have one month and a half or two months in order to do political action of this new government in Brussels. So I think in general we can say that this presidency is lost for us. That was Pablo Simon ending this edition of the Rackman Review. You can find FT articles relating to today's podcast in our show notes. And for a limited time this summer, we're making those articles free to read for all Rackman Review listeners. So click the links in our show notes to make the most of this summer offer and enjoy more of the FT's international journalism with no paywall. That's it for this week. And that's all from me, Henry Mance. We'll be back next week with another FT editor as guest host in Gideon's absence. So please keep listening. <laughs>